So I'm just going to... Hello, everyone who's joining us on the feed. Uh, bear with us a second while we get this going. It's a very professional outfit, as you can imagine. Uh, let's see. Just pin that. Pin, lovely. And go in here. And crikey, what I need to do is make sure I mute this. There we go. Okay, good stuff. Um, I think it's happening. Ten people following. So this is going to be... Okay, right. This is going to be tricky because I'm going to have to follow the chat. Okay, everyone. So welcome. Welcome to Rail Matter. I'm very pleased to say we have Mike Muldoon from Alston with us. I think you can see him in the corner. Uh, hello, everyone. Hello. Um, so this is... Uh, right, we're nearly there. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, everyone, right. So it says live in eight hours. No, we're live now. We're here. Um, I'm going to be following the chat on a thing down here because I've got to have another thing here to make sure this works. So this is not going to be as... Well, we'll see. But anyway, right. Without further ado, Mike sat there like, what is going on? <laughs> I, I, we're just going to get started, I think. So uh, welcome to... Uh, Welcome to another episode of, of Rail Matter. Oh, it's not Rail Over the Pennines. Well, never mind. We can, we can, you can cope with the fact that I've not updated the episode title, but that's fine. Um, right, so. As the 225 fades out, I'm pleased to bring us back to, uh, here we go. In fact, let's, so that's, that's the episode. It's episode four, hydrogen trains. Should have fixed that. Um, here we are. Mike is here. Um, there are already questions pouring in, Mike. Uh, good grief. So, yep. Uh, so the, would hydrogen trains work better if they, oh, crikey. Okay, so we've already, yep, let's not worry about, right, that's happening. <laughs> So this is going to work. Mike's going to go through some slides. It's going to be a nice chat. Every slide comes up. Ask your questions. Um, I'll do my best to feed those through to Mike. But Mike's kind of just going to talk. I think, Mike, you're just going to have a talk about through the slides, right? Um, that's the plan. Yes, yeah. we'll see. Yeah, that that <laughs> audio is, I mean, hopefully. I can see them. I'll talk through them. Yes, right. So um, without further ado, I will. Um, there we go. Yeah, so it, it's, it's a very official looking thing, as you can see. Uh, no expense spared. Uh, yeah, Mike's going to talk about hydrogen trains. So what I'll do is I'll just kind of progress these slides through and um, and I'll let you chat about them. So, um, yeah, uh, in, uh, on, on you go, Mike, and I'll feed you questions after you kind of, um, after you make, yeah, as you make points. Is, I can't see them at the moment, Gareth. Ah, yes, right. So that's because I need to do this button here. There we go. There we go. So, um, so basically then, hydrogen trains... Um, and, and why are we doing it and what have we got to do? Um, hydrogen trains have come to the forefront of many of our um, thinking because of the necessity to decarbonize the rail industry. Um, and why have we got to do that? Well, I think probably everyone watching will be familiar with the general gist of the climate change issues that we face. It was the big emergency before the current big emergency. Um, and I certainly hope will last a lot longer than the the one we're we're dealing with at the moment. Um, but that standalone, as a, as a as a standalone thing, doesn't necessitate hydrogen trains unless or until we decide to do something about the climate emergency. And that was really um, the point of discussion with DFT some time ago, um, and with various stakeholders in the market. Well, if we if we want to introduce technologies like this, what's the driver? What's the imperative to do it? 
Um, and we, we actually got one. Um, Joe Johnson was the uh, Minister of State for Transport um, for uh, covering this area back in, in 2018. He's had numerous successes since. But anyway, at the time, he issued the challenge to the rail industry to, to, to map out how it would decarbonise. Uh, and that resulted in, in the response from the task force you can see below. And he wanted us to, to achieve decarbonisation by 2040 in order that rail could contribute to the net carbon zero by 2050 objective for the UK, which, as you know, has now been set in legislation. Um, the conclusion was we could um, and we should. Um, the, the Scottish government then leapt in and, and competed in this space and determined that Scotland's emissions should in fact be eliminated by 2035. So we've set ourselves some fairly challenging timescales. If you think about what they constitute in terms of rail planning and train product life, control periods, whatever you want, to, however you measure your time, even just in years, 2035 is... Uh, if we assume they're going to start on the on the 1st of January, it's under 15 years away now, and uh, we have an awful lot to do to achieve these objectives. So that really is the the scene into which we 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 step as we as we contemplate what we're going to do. As you press next for me. Oh please. yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll I'll mash the next button. While I keep that one up, we've 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 got some questions that are coming, but I think they're going to be answered as we progress. So I'm going to hold fire on those, and yeah, we'll okay. we'll pop through to the next one. So. So, okay, so there's a, there's, an, there's a climate imperative, but what does that mean in terms of or why would we then talk about hydrogen trains? Why do they have a part to play? I mean, let's face it, we all know electrification is the most efficient means of providing energy to power trains. Bottom line, that's a fact. And, and Alstom is a major supplier of electrification. would love to see um, every route mile in every country electrified. I'm sure we could do a lot of business with a lot of providers and system operators uh, if if that were the case. But of course, pragmatically, um, we know there are places where we have no wires, and then we're gonna to have to store the energy for driving, for driving the train on board. Um, let's face it then, in, in those terms, we know that charging batteries is more efficient than creating hydrogen. Um, you'll read all about this, you'll have seen all these arguments. Elon Musk is a prime exponent of the fact that if you charge a battery, you merely introduce electricity to the energy store and you draw electricity out. It's an efficient process. He's absolutely right. Um, so we understand batteries. We understand electrification. We've never used hydrogen. It sounds like it's, 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 it's um, not necessarily the obvious place to go. So why is, why is hydrogen coming to the fore? Why are we talking about it? Why are we building hydrogen trains and proposing more? Um, if we look on the next slide, um, the we need to really start from that question of storing energy. Why, you know, if we're going to store it, what's the, what, what are the issues that we have to deal with? So uh, that objective of, fully, of a fully electrified railway is a long way off in terms of the actual extent of electrification that we have so far. So we're looking at a store. Um, we need something that will uh, carry energy and not create emissions. Um, so if we look at energy storage media. Um, diesel is fantastic. This is why we love liquid hydrocarbons. In terms of the energy density per litre, it's incredibly efficient. Um, it's uh, flexible, uh, in a liquid form, easily handled, admittedly a little bit hazardous if mishandled, um, but acceptably so. And we have years and years of experience using it. 
um, and 70, 70 years of, of seventy years plus of mainline operation of diesel trains in this country. So that's why we love it so much. It's a very practical and flexible store. The problem we have is if we're going to replace diesel um, and if we're going to accept that's what we're going to do, then we really have to look at alternative stores. Hydrogen is a pretty good. It's, it's actually very dense in energy terms per unit weight. The trouble is it's a gas, so it doesn't weigh a lot. Um, <laughs> so so in, unit, in, in density per unit volume, uh, it's also got very low energy, de uh, energy density at atmospheric pressure because it's, um, it's a very low density gas. So in fact, you have to compress it to 350 bar, so roughly 5,000 pounds per square inch, uh, in order to um, get it to a, a state where, where it contains roughly speaking, an eighth of the energy per litre that your diesel would contain. So quite a lot of effort there to get something that is eight times less efficient in space terms on board the train. By way of reference, some of the best lithium-ion batteries are about half as efficient in, in volumetric terms. So they're going to need 16 times the space. Um, and per unit of, of mass, uh, energy density of batteries are, is incredibly poor, which is why you tend to have big, heavy batteries. Every time you want to do something more effective, more, more with batteries, you increase your weight and space requirements. So that's why we're looking at hydrogen, because it sits in between the two. Um, it gives us sufficient energy in a broadly accommodatable space to allow us to look at how we can propel trains in a zero emission way. Of course, all this is predicated on the fact that neither hydrogen nor batteries when used to power the train will generate emissions at point of use. So the train will be a zero emission product. Um, so just, just while we've got this slide up, Mike, uh, a thought based on a couple of questions we've had already. Um, just like in the steam era, there was a lot of momentum to kind of overcome with steam operation in the UK, even to move into diesel, let alone uh, electric traction. Um, have, you, have you found that there is still within the industry a lot of momentum or kind of comfort with diesel as a, as a, as a form of traction? Or do you, do you find that's not the issue? The issue is more the politics and the commercial element. Um, no, I think, I, think, I think the issues cover all of those brackets. I think there is a huge level of familiarity with uh, operating diesel trains. And I think that familiarity translates into a naturally defensive position. And, and as we go through this, there are areas of deployment which don't suit hydrogen so well. And, and uh, I should probably make very clear at this stage that none of this means hydrogen is the one solution for all our problems. Um, and I think that's key to remember, as I said at the start of this, you know, electrification is very effective and very efficient in many ways. It has its downsides. Um, and we may come to some of that, I expect, with questions as well. But all of the technologies have their pros and cons. The point is now that the, the, the con of diesel has become um, a major factor in terms of carbon and clean air emissions. Um, the, the other media are coming to the fore, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I imagine that there were many, many people protecting steam the day the first diesel rolled out. Yeah. It's just sense there's no point doing it. Uh, it took us years to make that transition. I think was it 1948 to about 1968 to get to transition from from steam to diesel. Um, uh, obviously, with some electrification thrown in for good measure, um, but fundamentally that's where they were. So um, I think we see the same kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. It's um. 
it's certainly a challenge. And as you say, it's, it's it's not just at the at the top level. You talk about depot, you know, operations kind of front facing mm. to passengers, but depot side, all the momentum, all the equipment, the idea are, oh, but do we have to do something completely new kind of on the back, you know, behind the scenes as well? I suppose there's a lot to overcome on that front. Um, uh, you know, even with electric trains, that's still a problem, uh, let well, alone hydrogen ones. It is. I mean, if you look at the overall emissions of the UK rail sector, about 30% of them still come from electric trains because, you know, the grid isn't clean yet. Um, and we have other factors involved with uh, how do we, uh, yeah, how do we, how do we move that infrastructure inside the depots from one place to the next? Um, it, it, it is going to be tricky. Uh, there are possible substitute fuels for diesel. Um, some of those can be very carbon efficient. Uh, but they're not so good on the NOx and particulates front. Um, and I think some of the studies are starting to suggest that you know adoption of compressed gases for trucks and lorries in, in urban environments is actually worse than running on diesel. Interesting. And consequences. So, you know, you get, I, th I think we're all in a, in a, on a voyage of discovery here. Mm. But certainly at the moment, what, what's, what's irrefutable is that the vehicles themselves become zero emission. You've then got to deal with the process scheme of things and you've got to deal with all of those infrastructure support necessities to make the transition. Yep. Right. Let's, uh, let's hop on to the next slide then. So, um, ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'd like to be a little bit controversial. Um, the point here, though, is we shouldn't be comparing with diesel. Um, the, the thing about diesel is that it is officially going to be dead. Um, I maybe jumped the gun by saying it is dead already. But going back to that point earlier, if a train has a life of 35 years, uh, and you're looking at buying a train today uh, that happens to operate in, in Scotland, are you really going to buy a diesel, which, which by the time you put it into service could have an operating life of 10 to 12 years? You're probably not. Diesel is already a almost an unattainable dream, um, assuming the policies don't change again. So realistically, we shouldn't be saying, how does it compare to diesel? How complex is it to roll out in relation to diesel? Should we keep the diesel because it's simple? We can't really say that because we can't use it anymore. Yeah, so, <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that really, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. done. Yeah. yeah, so so a rolling program of electrification, I think, the industry's done a huge amount of work to redress the misplaced misconception, perhaps they are, if they're misconceptions, they're probably well placed. The misconceptions around electrification in the political sphere that led to the changes that we saw in about 2015, when um, um, uh, Chris Grayling in particular uh, was, was very anti-electrification programs, and so it came across, whether it's his department himself or whatever, doesn't really matter. We all veered towards bi-modes, which of course include diesel traction, um, and, we, and, and, and we sort of ridiculed electrification as, a, as, a, as an outrageously expensive luxury. It clearly it isn't, and I think RIA and others have done a huge amount of work to redress the understanding of what goes on there, and a continuous rolling electrification program would both ensure we could start to see stuff, uh, see, see areas electrified, but it would also bring down the cost of doing it. But it won't do it all um, for reasons of cost, for reasons of the fundamental disruption of doing the electrification and, and the impact that would have on, on our future patronage of the railways. If we drive everyone off for donkey's years, what we modify everywhere? Um, we've only got to attract them back. There's a risk in that. 
Um, and we also have actual environmental issues around electrifying itself because of the um, environmental elements associated with the works themselves and with the uh, embedded carbon in, in all the kit that we fit, which will become a bigger factor as we saw in the recent challenge with Heathrow where um, uh, they were deemed not to have considered the overall environmental impact sufficiently. So I think it was a mix, um, but, but most significantly probably is now with the timescales we have, even if we wanted a fully electrified railway, there aren't the resources available to actually yep. do it. Yep. And, uh, yeah, definitely. Sorry, go on, Mike. No, no, that's all right. I mean, what that, what that means is really, you know, hydrogen and electrification are, are, are simply complementary technologies. And so are battery trains or battery EMUs as we know them, um, where they use where the battery is used for the shorter range hops, maybe with, in combination with some form of discontinuous electrification or whatever. There is a place for all of these technologies in what will be the future of railways. Same as we'll see on the roads with, with hydrogen vehicles, electric battery vehicles, what have you, whatever else may come along. But fundamentally, we, we need all of these technologies in order to deliver the outcome that, that we're charged with delivering. Um, yeah, so what I'm going to do is, is because there's quite a lot of interesting points that you've raised on that on that slide, and we've got a few good questions in. So I think I'll go th back through a few questions if I can. Um, sure. The first one is, um, okay, yeah, I'll pick a question from David Thompson, who's asking if we're likely to see brand new hydrogen rolling stock in the UK or just conver conversions of old stock. Or in fact, I'll tell you what, no, I'll hold that one off because I think I know slides that are coming up next. So actually, I'll hold that one. I'll ask one from David Shearers, which is... Um, he's asking about um, uh, electrolyzer plants that are installed at a depot generating hydrogen at the point of use. Um, so he's suggest asking, um, is it correct that hydrogen infrastructure isn't really an issue? Um, that's from David Shearers. This is a really interesting one, actually, because it, it, a, a hydrogen train without hydrogen is a chocolate teapot, isn't it? It has, nothing, it has no purpose. So what we've had to look at is how do you provide a system to, uh, to support the train? Um, and the, the logical answer in today's environment is to produce the hydrogen where you need it. So um, David refers to electrolyzers. Electrolyzers are a bit like a fuel cell operating in reverse. Instead of consuming hydrogen, they produce it from electricity and water um, along with oxygen. Uh, so from, from that point of view, you can create a generation facility on site, create your hydrogen through the day while the trains are out operating and then dispense it overnight to refuel the fleet. So that can be done. That is something that logically sits within a, or very close to a depot um, and is one of the elements that supports the features of, of hydrogen trains. Really, you don't, We don't envisage recharging during a day. Uh, you don't envisage sort of stopping halfway through the day and refueling if you can avoid it. The whole point is that the range is sufficient to allow you to fuel in one place at a time uh, and, and, and a method that's very similar actually to diesel. Mm. So it comes from something that looks like a pump uh, and, and takes about the same kind of time as it takes to fill a diesel train. So from that point of view, the use case for the operator, for the maintainer is to try and keep things as, as familiar as possible. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's which I think answers uh, Heel's question, which is um, whether you can fuel up a train um, with with fuel up a train with hydrogen that's on a route within normal station stopping times. It sounds like it sounds like certainly from your perspective, it's more you're going to have fuel up at the, fuel it up at the diagram at the um, at the depot sufficiently that it can complete a diagram. So complete what it has to do in the day before it's back at depot again. 
That sounds yeah. like that's what you think is the is the right approach. We 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 absolutely do. Um, the, the German trains are configured for that, and our our concept for the UK is exactly the same. We don't think it's well. The more you spread the infrastructure, the more you spread the support network, the more complicated you make both the operation and the planning for the route. Um, all you need is um, a, a, you know a charger to fail, let's say, or a train out on the network that, that can't move out of a location because it can't be charged doesn't really feel satisfactory. So the objective is to try and provide enough range on the train to allow it to do its full days of operation with, with sufficient in reserve to be comfortable and then just run the train through the day uh, so that the operator has the most familiar cycle. Now, I appreciate diesel trains today often get pushed out for, for two or three days using very large tanks on board. That, that luxury may not be something that can be offered with hydrogen simply because of that volumetric constraint I talked about. If it's eight times more, more space, we can't necessarily accommodate everything uh, sufficient on board to go more than a day. So there are still compromises operators are asked to make, but we're trying to minimise those to maximise the convenience of, of the system. We're going to have to change the way that we can't think, as, as this sort of slide, um, you know, if I pop it back up, sort of makes the point, we can't think in... The, in kind of diesel mind frame, the world is changing. We need to change with it, and 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 if that means that we have to change the operational patterns of, of trains at the fringes of the network, then then so be it. Really, that that's just something that the train operators are going to have to stomach. I think. Um, I do have so there's, I suppose that kind of answers David Shepard's question as well, which was um asking about how much infrastructure is required to distribute hydrogen versus distributing electricity. Well, I suppose actually. That's kind of a moot point because you're just relying on distributed electricity to generate the hydrogen at the depot, if, if, if I've got the right end of the stick. You have, yes. So you, you do need a, a healthy electricity supply at the depot, um, but you wouldn't, be move, you wouldn't be looking to create incidental points around the network. That's not to say you couldn't, and, and maybe people will come up with models where at a terminus station there's, there's, a, there's an opportunity to do that on particularly long routes. But, but it, the, the, the preferred way of operating would be to avoid needing to build that into your timetable. Because obviously, as we know, the, when the trains are out, you want them out earning revenue and you want them out operating. Yeah. Um, and then the last question before we move on, um, we're doing all right time-wise, actually. Uh, thanks for these questions, by the way, everyone. This is really good. Um, we'll hopefully get through them a bit as we go through the slides again. Uh, so David Shepard again asks, um, it's quite a nice, I quite like this question. Um, uh, you heard that hydrogen fuel creates water, which I think is correct. Um, would that cause any problems? Does it make steam or water leak into the train? Um, you know, he's seen aircon units on London Overground trains leak in hot weather. Um, so that's quite an interesting question about water production there. Yeah, they, that is the output, actually. And in fact, our, our lawyers in Germany won't allow us to call the train zero emission because they do emit <laughs> water. Um, and so they are strictly in legal sense zero. Um, the water that comes out is a kind of... It's, it's um, a bit like distilled water, mm. so it's, it's incredibly pure. And in fact, um, hydrogen fuel cell powered road vehicles have been shown to clean the air that they actually intake through the, through the fuel cells. Um, and Hyundai have demonstrated that they can, they can actually improve the air clean, cleanliness in a, in a city by using their vehicles in the city. That's a, that's a slight an aside. Um, the, the volume of water that comes out and the amount of steam is, is remarkably low, actually. Oh, okay. um, on the German train, which obviously is an operation, you can, you can fill a small drinking glass from the exhaust pipe 
Um, and you could, if you felt so like it, you could safely drink that glass. I wouldn't drink too much of it because distilled water isn't that good for you, but it's certainly not harmful. Um, again, the lawyers wouldn't let you, so don't try it. Um, <laughs> yeah. We had, we had Roger Harabin, in, in the BBC correspondent over in Germany. He wanted to drink it and they wouldn't let him. So, um, it, But it can be done and you can see it on YouTube if you look for people with hydrogen cars that drink the output water. The steam, again, it just depends on the weather conditions, whether it comes out, whether you get condensators, water or steam, um, and you would deal with it just like your condensing boiler does in, in your house, uh, a small runoff pipe. So we don't have the same problems with, uh, with the aircon leakage. Um, uh, yeah, that's um, all right. Thanks, thanks for that. Um, we'll come back to some questions, so keep sending them through. I'll do my best to kind of whiz back and forth through those, but um, I think we'll, uh, yeah, we'll crank on to the next slide, which we'll put up there. Yeah, yeah, and this brings us on really to what can these trains do? I mean, they best suit regional passenger services. That's because of the, the mix of range, speed, um, and, and volume of energy we can carry on board suits that type of service. And by that service, I mean stuff, we're talking a range of in excess of 1,000 kilometers, which is about 625 miles. Um, speeds of up to 160 kilometers an hour. So that those two factors make them sort of category A and B in, in the sort of categorization that's been adopted for vehicle types in the, um, in the uh, decarbonization strategy, for example. Um, the train itself is actually a battery hybrid, so it carries a battery as well. Um, rather than being a, 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 an energy battery, power battery is an energy battery, so we, we use it in a slightly different way to a battery-powered train, but we use it to capture regenerative energy and to boost acceleration to minimize the use of hydrogen, as you'd expect. Um, and as, as we are so familiar in this industry with doing, um, it's not a novelty, it is on cars. Um, we expect the performance is, is intended to match or slightly improve on the on the DMUs that we aim to displace. Again, that's because um, at least initially, this is about substituting a new technology for an existing technology to deliver the same service to the customers. As we go forward, um, it will give us options potentially to increase performance and, and perhaps uh, improve timetables. Mm -hmm. A lot of these routes aren't yet at the stage where um, in terms of you know passenger loadings and and sort of section times are are the problem they have the problem they have is is dirty old technology so that's the first thing to solve um, the refill time process is very similar to filling up a diesel train as I was saying so um, it literally is uh, you you hook up a, a, a supply pipe which delivers from a, a pump and um, and the system is fully automated monitors itself and ensures that it's it's safe and secure. And once the pressure in the in the fuel tanks has reached the 350 bar, you shut off and you have a, you have your full range. They are um, they do perform in all weathers. We've done extensive um, trial operations around, uh, particularly in Germany um, and into the Alps and other areas. You can see there. Um, again, we don't get the same performance degradation that you would see with batteries in in particularly in cold weather. So. The range is robust, defend, not dependent on the conditions, which is good. Um, uh, and then, uh, and also a side, uh, the other side product from a fuel cell is heat. So that can be harnessed for actually um, onboard heating purposes. Again, like we do with diesels, so uh, similar, similar usage. Um, one of the beauties of introducing hydrogen trains, if you want to replace them on your particular diesel route, is that you can build your hydrogen fuel facility. You can introduce, you can bring your 
uh, fleet onto depot and arguably if you wanted to choreograph it that way you could just flick a switch overnight and switch to hydrogen operation from diesel you haven't got that line side of that line of route activity that electrification brings with it yeah obviously we know ways of managing how to do electrification works but with restricted access and other things that's part of the cost driver that makes electrification expensive you can avoid that with this um, but again horses for courses um, and where have we got to with it? So based on those capabilities, we now have um, 41 uh, Karadia Islands ordered, um, which will enter service in uh, next year. Um, the, the original two pre-series units were operating in service in Germany from September 2018 um, until about two months ago. They've since operated in, in the Netherlands and are due to be operating next month in Austria. Um, I'm not aware whether that's been affected by the, um, the current travel restrictions there. Yeah, so um, I've got a couple of questions. If, while we've got this one up, um, in fact, good grief, they're flying in now. Uh, right, so given the... Oh, wait a minute. I'll just tell you who's asking that question. Uh, Owen O'Neill asked a question, which I think is a good one. Um, given the life of rail vehicles, should we be thinking about them as a vehicle we can plug a power pack into, which can then be changed as different energy sources develop? Um, and I think that will possibly feed into some of the later slides, but I thought I'd ask it now anyway. Um, I suppose in an ideal world, yes. The problem is, I mean, the reason we're looking at hydrogen now is hydrogen is a known technology today. What, what Making provision for anything always adds cost. So if you want to have something that's ready to receive something else, normally it costs you extra money to make that provision. When you don't know what you're making that provision for, it can become even more complex. So I suspect that up to a point, yes, replaceable power packs, and, and I know the argument goes that, that you know any bi-mode arguably has a, a removable diesel engine. Um, you might then have to ballast the train again to, <laughs> to, to take away the benefits of removing the engine in some ways. But um, you know there are, there are prospects around that. Um, while we have these um, differences in, in the volumetric requirements and things like that, it may or may not work. I know there are some who are claiming that they can already offer this facility. Um, I don't think anyone's demonstrated how they're going to make such a conversion work. And even when you look at the idea of you know swap hot swapping batteries, so rather than waiting to charge a battery, you swap a battery that's fully charged in. If you think about it, when, when batteries weigh tons, not grams or kilograms, but tons, um, and you've got a train full of people, how are you going to swap a battery? With, you know, you need a forklift, you need line side access, you need lots of things. So yes, where we can, you know, any tra and train is like your house. You don't bulldoze it when you redecorate. And, and we're speaking on, on networks and wireless systems and lands and all sorts of things wired into our houses that they were never built for. So you can do that with the basic body shell, but specifically designing in for, for yeah. unknown technologies will be very difficult. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good answer to a, a, a good question. Um, let's have a look. So, oh crikey, these, these are flying through thick and fast. And what I might do is um, capture some of these in an email and send you through and I can respond to them later because there's millions of questions I'm trying to keep on top of, which is good stuff. Um, I'll tell you what, let's go on to the next slide and I'll pick through some more questions that I like the look of. Um, let's do this and then this. Yeah, there we go. Uh, okay. So that, that brings us on then, obviously, to what we are doing in the UK. Um, 
we have for the last probably two years or so been working with Evershot Rail. Um, we we decided to to work with them. We 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 were looking at fleets in the UK suitable for conversion. And I know somewhere we've got banked that question about conversion versus new build, Gareth. So. Mm. Perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll address it a little bit in, in why we're looking at converting these particular trains. Um, we felt that um, we, we're expecting the market to adopt a brand new technology. We're coming to that market and saying, here, try this. Um, I think from an investor perspective, in terms of the likes of Evershot Rail, and also those that may be investing in um, what they want to do in terms of uh, fuel facilities, because a lot of that involves fuel providers who will be making significant investment. We're trying to hit a sweet spot where the volume of early introduction is sufficient to make it economic and plausible while we're not actually um, compromising or, or, or asking for an impossible um, uh, investment. So if you look at a converted train, you're going to operate it for a, a shorter period of time the, uh, yes, the, the, the period for return on investment is shorter, but the, the lease expectation can be managed and, and we can look at how you, how you insert that into the market in a bit more of a cost-effective way. Going forward, when, when the market is established, so if you, if you imagine going back to those days in 1948 when they started rolling out the first diesels, each time a fleet went somewhere, a fuel facility had to go with it. The same applies to hydrogen. As that network starts to build, a hydrogen-powered train, which uh, lease companies will consider to be an asset, that asset gains value because it can be used elsewhere. It's movable, it's redeployable, uh, and the risk of building those new trains comes down. So we expect to see a very rapid transition from um, uh, conversion into new builds. But the Class 321 fleet is ideally suited for our needs, um, is due to come off lease, or was due, was due to come off lease quite very humanly. Mm. It's a little bit longer now, but that's fine. Um, and it makes the perfect basis, we feel, for conversion, going back to redecorating that house. It's got all the bits we need. Um, and we can, we can and as demonstrated by, you know, Overshot's work on, on the Renatus project, it lends itself to becoming a fully a 21st century train. Um, and we'll fit it with 21st century traction equipment. Uh, and that will be based on what we've done in Germany. So we, we've got to repackage that kit. The German train is much bigger than a British train. So we've got to make it all fit. Um, there will be a first-in-kind homologation process of system approvals, which I think, think any of us would underestimate the potential uh, <laughs> <laughs> complexity of, both politically and, and technically, frankly. Um, but that needs to be gone through. And, and unless or until someone actually does it and addresses the real issues, we can all sit around as long as we like trying to second guess what will be the complexities of achieving that outcome and getting that certification. But unless or until someone actually does it, we won't know. So I think that you know, we're very keen to push on, uh, recognising there's a risk involved in being first in order to, to lay the way for, for, for the you know, broader conversion of the market. So, yeah, there's a lot of life in those Class 321s, actually. I mean, you see with the, the um, converted 319s, that, well, the, the upgraded 319s up in Manchester that are running the electric services up there, there's a, there's a lot of life in those locos, so it's, in those units. So there's um, it's kind of an obvious choice for conversion. It's no coincidence yeah. that the same train family are the ones that are being converted by your competitors for similar purposes. Like there's the good, the good, solid family of units, those. Um, I've got a question from, uh, or actually kind of a couple of questions that are talk, um, talking about... Um, uh, compression, uh, if you like, of hydrogen and the equivalent 
in terms of batteries. So I'm going to slightly adapt Jeff Wade's question, which is about the fact that battery technology is improving constantly. Um, is there a ceiling? Uh, and his question really is, is there a ceiling that hydrogen ca can reach um, that batteries won't? But I'm going to flip the question a little bit for you to answer, which is, um, do you see there being an opportunity for compression of hydrogen to improve over time? Are there kind of key technologies that are there's an issue, but you reckon that could be solved in, in, in time, or is it just a, a physics equation? Um, I think physics actually applies to both. Um, the point I made earlier about us all being very familiar with batteries um, is that, you know, I can remember as a child, a long time before you were, um, putting AA batteries in toys. Um, I still put AA batteries in toys for a whole new generation of children, and I probably will be in, in 20 years' time. Do those AA batteries give me a whole lot more uh, than they used to? Actually, no, they don't. And, you know, my iPhone still runs out of charge every day, no matter which model I buy and how modern it is and how improved that battery is. The laws of physics apply to batteries as well. And I think there is a myth around the rate of change of battery technology and the rate of improvement. Yeah. So we have to be careful that, that we don't back ourselves into a position of saying, well, um, basically, the technology will improve and our problems will be solved and we, need, and we just can have a faith in that. We can't do that. So where does that leave us with hydrogen? Hydrogen, the 350 bar compression standard has been adopted um, for commercial vehicles. It's based on the fact that it, it is deemed to require or, or, or to compress to sufficient level not to require too much space on the vehicle. And those vehicles are generally larger, therefore they have more space. Uh, is the view. Um, there is a standardized range of equipment for handling the gas at that pressure. Um, but also the, the fueling process is slightly simpler because um, one of the issues you have with refueling with hydrogen is that as hydrogen travels into a tank and, and, and transitions across and pressures change, you generate heat. Mm. So generating that heat, you generate more pressure. If you're not careful, you, you could have a self-sustaining situation where, where the pressure increases in an uncontrolled fashion. And that goes back to what I was saying about the monitoring systems that are involved in refueling. So there is a, a, a constant monitoring of that to ensure you don't have that. And we're talking sort of molecular level friction and all sorts of stuff that causes this heat generation. So you know, we'd have to get chemists on to talk about Yeah, that's it, yeah. But the bottom line is you're managing, you're managing a number of factors. If you happen to get yourself a hydrogen car, which you can do, they're, they're available on the UK market, it's not a straightforward purchase and, and refueling is, 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 is not well distributed, but you can do it. You'd actually be filling your car at 700 bar. And that standard has been adopted for road cars because of the space constraints that they have. And uh, a 700 bar tank on a car will give you plenty of um, uh, capacity mm. uh, to do sort of three, 400 miles, which is, you know, petrol equivalent and therefore deemed to be uh, very beneficial. But you have to chill the, the gas to refuel and you have to do other complexities. So there are pros and cons to all of these things. The point is the, the road sector often drives a lot of technological development. It's the one we expect to drive batteries. It will also drive hydrogen. Um, and so will other applications. So I, I couldn't say that tomorrow someone won't come out with a dream, you know, the, the, the pen cell that, that powers everything. But just at the moment, there's an awful amount, a huge amount of money going into that development. We'll have to see what it can yield. And it's, it's interesting you use the mobile phone analogy there. Is that one thing that trains have, um, they, their hotel power, if you like, the amount that they draw without going anywhere has increased almost to a quantum level, sort of for the last, you know, it's just been leaping and leaping for the last sort of 
20 years, you know, the amount of hotel draw from a, an IET or, or a, um, you know, one of the new various new units that are running, you know, one of the um, Aventras or whatever it is uh, from your competitors, whoops, uh, they uh, consume huge amounts just sitting doing nothing now because everyone wants to plug their phones in. They want to be, you know, all the computer c- customer information systems. I think it's a date. This is David Shearer, who, who I think wrote about this on for, for the Permanent Rail Engineering blog, actually. I think it's about a megawatt draw, hotel draw from a train. Uh, and it's just not moving. And, and so you, batteries get better, potentially hydrogen gets better, but actually you're, there's a, the hotel consumption of trains continues to increase as well as we want all of our fancy, fancy gadgets and gizmos to be plugged in. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I, I think the, the point about emissions, the point about all of this, is that the best way to cut your emissions is actually to use less energy. Um, and to use less energy, you need to look at things like light weighting, you need mm. to look at, at all of those peripheral systems, making sure that you have the absolute minimum draw. I mentioned reusing heat. Waste heat can be reused. We, we regenerate electricity on board in order to reduce the amount of overall expended energy in powering and driving the train. Everything has to be focused on that. And if you start from that place, design your product around that, you can start to make inroads to offset yeah, the, the, the demands that we as a society are putting on everything at the moment. Um, and then the last, we'll move on to the next slide and tick. We've had quite a few questions about safety, as you'd expect. It's hydrogen. People are so, people still have that black and white image of the Hindenburg going up in smoke um, when it comes to hydrogen. Um, uh, so we've had, a, we've had one question about training specialist firefighters. Do we need to do that? And then another about general safety and about the fact that some hydrogen plants have gone pop in um, America recently. Um, so I suppose general safety considerations, um, yeah, uh, tell us about safety and, and what you've done, what Alstom have done from a safety perspective, and what you think about hydrogen from a safety perspective. Well, I think our, our perspective on it is that um, any form of stored energy is a potential hazard. I think that, that's not our perspective, that's just, just general fact. So as, as we all know, you know, the, anything, uh, a compressed spring is a form of stored energy. And if it's decompressed in an uncontrolled manner, it could cause you harm. So from that point of view, you've got to, you've got to approach it like you would anything that, that contains that risk. The, the approvals process for the Caradia Island went through a standard railway approvals process based on, on the common safety method and risk assessment. Um, there are no regulations specific to hydrogen trains in Germany, just like there aren't here. Um, and there weren't any required ultimately to achieve uh, approval of the train because you have to use subject matter expertise and you have to address it. Now, there is quite a large body of subject matter expertise. Hydrogen is novel to us in the rail sector, but of course the compressed gas sector has been using it for, for decades. And we've been moving it around the country for decades and handling it in various industrial processes for that kind of time. So in fact, it's not... Um, Yes, yes, in, in, in the broadest definition, it's hazardous, but, but frankly, there are technologies and methodologies available for handling it. And some of those I've already referred to in the fueling process and everything else, because it's, it's established equipment and established processes, and, and we as an industry need to adapt and adopt those, those processes to suit what we need to do. Um, I think it is worth... Uh, a couple of things. I, I should say bingo, because you said Hindenburg, and, and that's... <laughs> yes, <it>. yeah. <laughs> um, it, obviously, you know, there are many theories around what happened there, but it wasn't compressed hydrogen in that anyway. Um, it was actually uh, just in its standard form. But um, 
yeah, I, I think our view is it's safe. The view of the authorities in Germany was it's safe. It's proved to operate in tunnels up to five kilometers. It's not, um, it's not something that is treated as more or less hazardous than other energy stores. And incidentally, um, as much of our certification effort in Germany was on the battery as it was on the on the hydrogen traction system. Yeah, and batteries go pop too, um, in a big way when they don't when they when they want to, um, depending on the technology that. Uh, Anyway, the point being that electrification is also uh, very dangerous. Uh, you know, it's not, you know, we're dealing with dangerous stuff. Trains are heavy. Trains are dangerous no matter what they're powered with. You know, these are systems, that, you know, it's a safety critical industry. There's so many levels of, of um, as you say, assurance that you have to go through to make sure we're all comfortable that uh, safety is the, is the number one thing, that trains are, you know, the new trains you're introducing are no less safe than the ones they're replacing, if you like. Um, I, think, I think it comes back to familiarity as well. We, we are willing, as culturally, we're willing to accept risks that we feel we understand. We all sit in cars, sitting on top yeah. of, of petrol tanks, which we've watched a million movies that show us what happens to a petrol tank if it ignites. We know what happens there. There are 5,000, I believe it was 5,000 petrol station fires a year in America. Um, but we accept that. That's an acceptable risk to give us the upside of travelling. I don't want to diminish or belittle in any way the necessity to manage hydrogen very carefully. It is, like all of these energy stores, it has its potential uh, downsides and we have to be, act accordingly. Uh, excellent. Yeah, right. I shall return us to the slides, conscious that it's quarter two and I'm, I've natted too much. Right. Uh, yes. Here we go. Oh, in fact, there we go. There's your... Um... Well, so there you nice, go. That, 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 that's what a 321 looks like or will look like after we've had our play with it. So uh, that gives you the image, the, the, the identity of the train. We've, we've called it Breeze. Um, most hydrogen projects start with the two letters high. Um, we just didn't want to go there because <laughs> everyone else had. Um, so, uh, but, but fundamentally, you, you wouldn't expect ever to see the train look like this as such. I'd expect it to be liveried by operators for normal integration into their fleets in a, in a seamless manner. Um, oh, it does look very nice. Uh, although, as you say, I'm not sure we'll necessarily see any out. I don't know, are you going to livery up the first one that's running around like that? Or do you think it'll be in it? <laughs> that, that, well, that will boil down to customer's preference. Uh, the customer is always king in these, in these matters. I think whoever does it and however we do it, the words powered by hydrogen will be prominent. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Um, right here we go. Right, so this this is referring a bit to a bit towards um, yeah, so towards hydrogen and, and and some of the other kind of the wider macroeconomic stuff, which I think is really important. And we've had quite a few questions about that, so I'll, I'll let you um, talk through this yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think and and I, I think there's a there's a there's a point to recognise in all of this that um, there's a lot of talk about building gigafactories in Britain and and all sorts of collateral benefits or argued argued benefits of the electric car revolution or anything else. I think the problem we have is that is that we've already lost ground in battery technology production. The Chinese pretty much own the world. Bosch pulled out of traction batteries because they just felt they couldn't compete uh, so, uh, for, for road vehicles. So, so from that point of view, I think we have to accept that we need to find other avenues for, for the new uh, you know, British industrial revolution that we need to have in order to, uh, you know, get ahead in the world. Hydrogen could offer us um, an avenue for that. Um, and, and the hydrogen trains would drive demand for a lot of the high value systems we have on board, like fuel cells, like electrolyzers to pack to create the hydrogen, storage tanks, control systems, 
all of those are at a very early stage of development. There isn't a huge global supply chain feeding them. We have a real chance here. Making these local investments in each locality where we deploy the fleets, where there will be jobs created and skills created that don't currently exist to either build and operate the, the fueling stations or to uh, you know, support the fleets. We also have an opportunity to collect the individual benefits of those uh, at a national scale and start to create a, a supply chain here that could then lead into export markets. And I, I think that's something that perhaps we forget as the rail industry. We're normally very small. We're normally a niche compared to other sectors and we, you know, our diesel engine the diesel engines required by the rail industry are probably produced, the equivalent is probably produced by Volvo before the morning tea break on a shift, or what we need in a year. So yeah. <laughs> in this case, we can we can help to drive it together with the bus sector and other sort of heavy good vehicles. We can really start to feed in and, and, and create the need for a supply chain. You can't create a supply chain without demand. You've got to have demand first. Um, yeah, so we've had... Um... We've had a few queries. Uh, first one, you'll be happy to hear that Roaming Adocrat uh, is very impressed by the um, Alstom-esque headlight clusters on that uh, 321. So uh, you'll, be, you'll be glad to hear that. Um, I think you might answer the next one on an oncoming slide, but I'll ask it anyway, just in case, and you can say, wait a second. Uh, Matt Reed asks, when should we expect to see the first hydrogen train in commercial operation? Ooh. Well, um... We we do come to that, but the rate we're going, we might not get there. So what what I'll um, I mean, if if someone was to be honest, the 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 introductory process really is dependent on on the first orders for the trains. Um, the our, our intention is to deploy a fleet um, and to get into the. You need to do that to verify all of the all of the operational factors around adoption of hydrogen in the market. Um, if we want to look at a demonstration train, you're very welcome to come to Germany or Austria and, and ride one. Um, it, it exists and we've done that. So as we look at rolling out a fleet, you could see them in commercial operation by sort of late 2023, we would estimate at the moment. But that needs a fairly swift move towards um, uh, you know, realisation of, of, of an order or a contract to actually progress. And, and you might say, well, why don't we build them? Uh, you know, out of scheme, ahead of ahead of any order. Um, again, from an Alstom perspective, we've demonstrated that we've done it, just not in this country. Um, uh, early discussions with various industry groups suggested that that it wasn't appropriate. You know, we don't need to do an industry demonstrator. Um, you could have a look at a Hydroflex if you want. That's shown that hydrogen can make a train move. Mm. It's not a production solution, though. What we're talking about here is delivering a production solution, an actual product as opposed to a test bed. To do that, it would probably take until that kind of time frame. Um, right, yeah, I'm conscious of time. I don't mind running over a bit because we don't have any other TV programmes to bump out of the way, but I'm conscious of your time more than anything else. So we'll, we'll press on and I think we'll go through the slides now and then round up yeah, any questions okay. at the Sorry, end. I, I thought we'd get cut off. We don't cut off. So. No, no, no. I, I, yeah, we'll just delay the, the, the horse racing or whatever it is after us. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Now, we've kind of covered this a lot anyway. The point here is that... Um, you can get hydrogen in different colours. It's a colourless gas that comes in colour, hmm. um, which is a bit random. But fundamentally, there are a number of ways of producing it. Most production, almost all of it in the country at the moment, is, is effectively industrial production using a process called steam methane reformation. Um, as you can imagine, if it uses methane, it involves carbon, so it's not carbon-free. That means you get what's called brown hydrogen. Um, and if you use brown hydrogen, you can, although your vehicle is zero emission, 
which is measure your emissions from well to wheel, uh, then arguably you, you have got a carbon footprint that's not significantly better than, um, well, it is significantly better than basic diesel emissions, but it's not, not where you want to be. Um, but it's a good starting point because the train doesn't care what colour the hydrogen is. So you could you could clean up your stations, clean up the air quality in city centres mm. where trains sit idling. You could do a lot of things and make a lot of immediate health improvements, even if you don't hit the carbon goal in one step. But as you go forward, you'll want to clean up your hydrogen. There's a couple of ways of doing that. One is that you capture the carbon that you produce. Um, so carbon capture usage and storage, CCUS is now very much back in the forefront of government thinking and involves putting carbon gases back under the North Sea and in other caverns from which we've extracted carbon gas. Again, it takes a bit of getting your head around, but, but it's not like burying waste. What you're doing is putting a carbon gas back where a carbon gas came from. So you're kind of rebalancing things there in a way. Um, but obviously it's a finite opportunity, and although the UK is particularly well placed in terms of the amount of resources we have for it, we haven't got it online yet. Mm. Then there's green hydrogen, which goes back to the electrolyzers that David mentioned earlier. Um, if you hook up an electrolyzer to a renewable energy source, you have an entirely carbon-free uh, well-to-wheel process. You have probably, um, second only the bicycle, um, you know, the cleanest means of land transport, because there is, you know, there is nothing involved there in terms of in terms of carbon emissions nor are there any particulates or, or NOx or anything else. So you've got a really clean system. And, and that could mean the first hydrogen trains could leapfrog every other form of train and, and every other form of land-based vehicle in Britain and become the, um, the sort of leading um, um, means of carbon-free transport. Is that if you're suggesting that you stick a turbine up at the depot and use that entirely? So you can guarantee a well, renewable well, source. Yes. You can, depending how you can draw your electricity, if you can draw it from a from a, a renewable source, then yes, you can you can do it that way. Um, but it doesn't take it. it you know, it's not a huge amount of, of, of renewable energy that's required, or a huge amount of turbines. It varies depending on their scale and size, but but you can do quite a lot with relatively small resources. Um, yeah, do you want me to flip to the next slide? That's a, that's a good yeah. one for everyone to pay attention to that, some, some good numbers. Um, oh yeah, here we go, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think this is where this fits into the bigger picture again. So we talked about export potential, we talked about industrial benefit. Also, probably some of the people on, on the call won't, won't know this. I, I certainly didn't before I started lifting the bonnet on all of this stuff. Um, there's a huge amount of work going on in what is called the hydrogen economy for the UK at the moment. Um, and that is looking at how do we decarbonise heavy industry? How do we decarbonise um, all sorts of industrial processes that require high levels of heat? Um, and how do we actually um, decarbonise home heating? Um, home heating is actually one of the biggest polluting sectors in the country because we all, 99% of us or thereabouts, have a gas boiler. We burn gas, methane in that boiler and we emit carbon. Um, and we don't think of it in those terms, but that is, a, that is the reality. Hydrogen actually is compatible with the gas grid, um, where, where the grid's been updated to the plastic pipe, which it has to be by legislation over the next couple of years. Um, and that process of upgrading the grid makes it hydrogen compatible. That's a happy coincidence. That wasn't by design, but that's how it works out. Um, the people that are currently supplying natural gas have a vested interest in all those assets stuck in the ground, mm. um, and they are very keen to look at options to convert to the uh, production of uh, the use of hydrogen in the gas grid. 
Highnet is one project based around the Liverpool region, led by the likes of Cadent. Um, uh, Cadent are also involved in the one on the right, which is H21, uh, which is also Northern Gas Networks and other other groups. Uh, there are plans with you know Scottish um, uh, electricity, um, the, the, the grid provider in Scotland that also covers the south of England. Many of our uh, providers are actually looking at substituting hydrogen. The problem is getting it all off the ground, of course. How do you make the first steps? How do you mm. get the first deployments? And that's the beauty of, of, a, of a train requiring its electrolyzer plant, requiring its production and its, its, its consumption. If you build a fuel pump for a car or you build a, a, a supply for houses, unless or until people start to consume on an individual incremental basis, you've got no customers. Um, Shell have been investing a lot in this sector because they recognize the writings on the wall for their bread and butter. Um, they, they have a number of hydrogen fuel stations in, in, in their regular petrol stations around the country. They invest a lot of money to make hydrogen available and, and there's 100 cars on the road at the moment that can consume it. You can imagine the return on investment is dire. That it isn't the case with trains. We know that the train, where the trains will be, we know their timetable, we know how much fuel they'll need, they know, we know they need it every day, well, except Christmas Day, over, over for 10 years or whatever the period is, we become a very compelling customer. Um, and that allows then um, investment in, in capacity to supply trains and, and potentially overcapacity to then expand that network for other users and other modes of transport and industrial consumption. So we actually have a part to play now in helping the progression of these plans to sort of decarbonize the UK on a broader level. Our, our, our opportunity to do so will be fleeting because ultimately these schemes will be huge and will then simplify our, our issues around sourcing hydrogen. But until they do, we're actually in the vanguard of, of, of rolling out hydrogen across the economy. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it's quite a thought-provoking kind of slide this one isn't it it just it's something that yeah certainly in the railway we don't have as much sight of and yeah that's something perhaps something we can explore again in the, maybe another another chat because there's a lot there's a lot there to take in really um i'll bump us to the next slide but i do have a few questions um so before i ask this before we progress to this slide two questions the first i can't remember who asked it it might have been just one in my head which is um hydrogen for freight vehicles is that something that you uh, alston have thought about looked at considered is it realistic? Um, at the end of the day, um, freight vehicles are, are, are basically trains, but they require more energy. So all of the issues I've described would apply to a, to a hydrogen freight train. The problem is you need to carry a lot more hydrogen to generate the levels of power that are needed to, um, uh, to, to move the train. So the, our current thinking has been focused on passenger vehicles. Um, we are looking at loco applications, and I'm sure others are around the world as well. Uh, and I think I recall there was a loco uh, converted to hydrogen in North America some time ago, actually, mm. for demonstration purposes. Yeah, it had a, sort so, of it carried a, it carried a tender around, basically, didn't it? I think yes, full of hydrogen. And, and tenders are one concept. If you need space, that's one way of, of gaining it. Now, of course. As everything on our railways, um, freight trains equally are constrained in the length they can be. Mm. So anything lost in terms of the space to carry the fuel is, is revenue lost in terms of what they can earn. So there are there are significant challenges in achieving um, freight trains powered by hydrogen, but those challenges are to the same extent less than achieving it with battery. 
Um, mm. So, you know, we, 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 with, with no technologies at the moment, we're, we're looking at ways that one could do that. We're also looking at shunting locomotives and mm. other applications because, of course, there are a lot of those around the world, both in, in depots in the railway industry, but also in other industries and ports in particular and places like that where where all of those vehicles will need will need uh, decarbonising, basically. Um, and then the next question, which is a really good one, uh, which is from John Christoph, who I think is in the US, actually. Um, and he asked the question, uh, isn't there a risk, or broadly, kind of, I'll paraphrase for it, uh, isn't there a risk, or is there a risk, that politicians pick up uh, hydrogen as a panacea, a bit like they did with bimodes a few years ago, and run with it at the expense of OLE? And what can the industry do to combat that? Yes, there absolutely is a risk. Everyone wants a silver bullet, but arguably we want it in every sphere of life, don't we? You know, one, one, one solution fits all um, would, would be great. Um, so yes, there is a risk, and that's part of the reason why I, I started this evening by saying we all know electrification is great, um, because we do, um, but we do. We need to make sure others understand that as well. Those of us in the industry get it. We understand the necessity to mix these technologies. We do need to keep reiterating that message, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, it, it, similarly, the same way Chris Grayling was accused of adopting bimodes over and above everything else, I've also seen him described as being obsessed with hydrogen. I can't say that I came across that to quite such an extent, but um, politicians in particular need fast solutions to problems. Uh, they live in a in a relatively short term environment, so we have to try and manage those expectations. And as we know, that's a perennial issue for rail because our investment plans always span longer than a minister's. Office. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Excellent. Oh, that's really good. Right. So let's um, press on with this slide. I think. Yeah. Okay. So this is this addresses some of those questions about when could things happen, what needs to happen. So business cases with operators, so we have a franchise rail system in Britain, sort of, at the moment. Um, we'll be going to it, we don't know, but whoever operates the trains, however they are brought into service, will be different to the operating models that we have currently. That needs to be evaluated and assessed. Um, that then leads into the approval to pr proceed, um, and that must, at the same time, in parallel to proceeding with trains, you must proceed with the fuel stations, otherwise you simply won't achieve the um, you know the joined up outcome that we need, um, and that then kicks off that safety case approval process that I described. It, it allows us to look in to to move all of the stakeholders through the necessary steps. And this is another reason why a demonstration train is only ever a bit of a false exercise, really, because you haven't taken all the stakeholders with you. You've got you know a safety case in Britain is owned by the operator, not by the manufacturer. Um, you've got to involve the right players in in the process. Um, that then could lead to the dates you can see there, and and follow-on fleets are, are many constrained by the, you know, the 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 ability to recycle through that process. We would we would expect to actually build the trains at our, our witness facility. I think that might be on the next slide, Gareth. Oh yeah, do you want me to flip through? Exactly. Do that. There we go. I mean, yeah. It isn't quite. I'll come to that. But anyway, okay. I mean, and and that then leads into those. Um, it leads into a number of, of, of potential benefits for the system, but, but overall, that, that, that's the process we need to go through to put these trains into service. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. So the and, 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 and going back to the impact. So trying to make it relatable again, 
in that political world, in the public domain, me talking about, you know, delivering uh, products to market and, and all that kind of thing can become a bit, um, I always get accused of using too much, uh, too many uh, technical terms, if you like, commercially technical, if not technically technical. But basically, if you translated it and you wanted something to write on the side of a campaign bus, you might say that um, if we were able to replace merely half of the predicted demand for uh, independently powered multiple units, trains that carry energy. Um, so that's based on sort of DFT figures. There's, there's 2,500 odd um, DMU carriages that would need replacing. Mm. So to do that, you could be using 100 tonne plus of hydrogen a day quite easily. Um, you could be saving about 533,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide. I'm not entirely sure what that looks or feels like. Obviously, it feels bloody yeah. <laughs> looks Looks like a massive number, doesn't it? But, but it does yeah. look massive. It's, it's actually not that massive in some ways. It equates to 383,000 cars off the road. That's quite a big car park. So, you know, there's a benefit. You can more relatable in those terms. And if you relate that the removal of those cars in clean air terms, never mind the future improvement in the climate that, that all of this brings, the relatable numbers we have today relate to clean air. If you took that many cars off the road, you could you could extrapolate that to about 100 million a year in health costs and 110 premature deaths saved by converting the rail fleets. Mm -hmm. I think those are quite quite attractive numbers, especially if you happen to be one of the 110 people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah. So for an idea of scale, so um, a month of road transport emissions is uh, around about I think it's about 12 million tons equivalent co2 so actually saving saving that per year is really good but it shows how much further you know it shows the importance of continuing to pull people away from road onto rail because that you know in terms of orders of magnitude half a million tons is huge absolutely huge you know that's that's a massive proportion it's a 16th of hs2's construction emissions if you for example but um but it, it it's indicative that in rail we're not that bad. No matter how we power our trains, we're not that bad. And it, I suppose it's, we need That's to encourage, and, and it's encouraging people, you know, the, the, the important thing is to encourage people onto the system. Um, and, and, and this helps actually, showing that we're making massive efforts to decarbonize our industry, despite the fact that the overall numbers are not necessarily colossal, um, will help people to realize that, that rail is, is the future transport. And I think the other thing is to say that these trains will have more passenger capacity than they currently is utilized. So you could grow the traveling ridership without in any way impacting or increasing your emissions. Um, that's not possible with individual personal transport at the moment. So, uh, nor would it be until the grid is entirely renewable and green and there's no emissions associated with charging up your electric car. Yeah, amazing point, whatever people want. To <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I'll quickly ask a question. I'm conscious of time, but everyone, I've just apologised for us being late. No one seems to mind, so I'll try and wrap up reasonably quickly. Quick question, though, which was from Sarah Noble ages ago. Um, so you've got 2023 20, as a number on there. Um, hydrogen cars have always had like a five-year slip. Like it's always been, oh, it's five years away, it's five years away. Um, that 2023, so from my perspective, I think the only thing holding it back is the delay to the Greater Anglia fleet. Is that right? So the, the new fleet it's, for Greater Anglia. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a cascading issue. But once you guys get hold of the three two ones, it, it will be There's a cascading issue, and there's a commercial issue as well. They have there has to be there has to be a a demand. Like I said, we we are offering up a supply chain here, but we need a demand, and we're working on that commercially to make sure that's all secure. 
So it's 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 you know I wouldn't want to suggest that it's all to do with with delays on new trains for Anglia. That's not the case, but it it, it is all. all it, there's a lot of factors have to be aligned, and, and they're not all technical; they're commercial as well. Excellent. Right. Okay. Next, we'll uh, crack on to the next slide. Oh, here we go. Yeah, perfect. Oh, that kind of ties into what we were saying a second ago, actually. It, it does. I mean, the, the bottom line here is 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 the beauty of, of starting to make changes now. I think I think you talked about people defending diesel. I think people defend the status quo mm. more generally, uh, and suggest that actually, if we put off doing anything until sort of December thirty first, twenty thirty nine. We'll get the best out of the, of the resources we've, or the assets we've got now, and then we'll flick a switch and magically solve our problems. That's not going to work so smoothly, I think, as some might hope. But also, if you start to make change now, you're accruing benefits over the elapsed time. So if it's 15 years until we actually solve all of the routes and have everything fixed, for some of those 15 years, clean trains will be running constantly and, and accruing benefits in terms of carbon emission. So I think we can save lives today, tomorrow, and, and, and throughout the process by doing this, we can also help to mitigate the frightening um, prospects of, of the climate change yeah. um, and hopefully meet the needs, the, the, some of the expectations and, and heartfelt, heartfelt beliefs of, of those that are now starting to get much more vocal in their protests about you know, industry and transport more generally. Yeah, definitely, and it's 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 a point that I try and make a lot is that there are rarely panaceas. Like, actually, there's just a huge tapestry of solutions to to the problems that we're facing, and climate change is is no different. Arguably, it's kind of the perfect example of like there are just an unending list of different ways that we need to resolve that, even within the rail industry. You know, things like you know more, you know, how do we reduce consumption of stations? How do we? There's there's just an unending list, and hydrogen trains are, are certainly part of that tapestry. Um, and you know, get. I suppose it's uh, as having a united front as an industry, no matter whether you've got a, you know, ma no matter what hat you're wearing, and making the case that it's not an alternative to electrification. It's a it's a stopgap, and also it's a solution at the fringes, and it's a solution where electrification isn't um, isn't feasible or practical. Um, and, and, and I suppose that that's the key thing. But it's it's part of the mix. Um, Oh yeah, nice. So that actually, so that knocks us nicely into the in, into the kind of the, the any questions bit. But I think we've gone through quite a lot of the questions. Um, if anyone's got a lot of the yeah, if anyone's got questions they want to re-ask that I've missed, uh, shout up now. Um, we're only ten minutes late. That's probably fine. Uh, yeah. So let's see. I'll just qu have a, quickly have a trace through. Um, there's quite oh, there are quite a lot of people who are asking each other questions now about things that, that, that this generally happens in the chat, Mike, and that which I love, is that people just generally have a nice long chat about railways, which is great. Um, oh, uh, yes, MJ Gaming HD asked a question about how do you get into, um, actually, you asked about the hydrogen industry more broadly, but I think um, about a career in, in you know, how, how can MJ Gaming HD get involved in um, hydrogen trains and, and helping hydrogen trains to become a reality? Uh, I think, I think the... All of the, the the rail manufacturers will be um, will be interested in this technology. We already have a number of specialist engineers recruited in the UK with this, with the purpose of working on hydrogen development. Um, I think uh, I expect others will do that. But I think as well, it's, there's a whole area around the supply chain. There are emerging businesses working in the areas of electrolyzers, in fuel cell technologies. Um, there's there's uh, opportunities starting to emerge. I think 
it is a bit of a voyage of discovery. If you if you start looking at uh, Googling, for want of a better way of doing it, Googling around the UK um, environment, you can find references to some of these operators, uh, some of these in, in early stage SMEs, a lot of them, who are now starting to progress into developing product. There are people in, in um, uh, producing things like hydrogen fuel cell powered drones, motorcycles, all sorts of products that are already out there. Um, a fuel cell drone can do warehouse stock takes for hours, where mm-hmm. a battery will go up for 20 minutes. You know, it's all about the same issues that we have in rail. It's a question of scaling things up. Um, uh, so we've got a question from uh, Michael C, which is, uh, will bimode hydrogen trains be a thing so they're effective under the wires? Um, uh, yeah, so essentially bimode, but with uh, hydrogen uh, as the as the alternative source. What do you think about that? Um, that is a possibility, yes. Um, again, because of the, the same issue you have with diesel as you have with hydrogen in this instance, the range on the secondary traction system is 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 compromised by also being an electric train, mm. but you can do it. And in fact, um, we are working on a project of that type with SNCF in, mm. in France, for example, exactly that, that type. So we've got numerous project alternatives going on at the moment. Having having put ourselves out in the hydrogen space, we've been somewhat overwhelmed by the level of interest globally, actually. Um, yeah, so let's have a look. Ah, another good question. Um, which I suppose I know, I know what your answer is going to be, which is uh, sure. But uh, David Shepard asks, um, should hydrogen depots, uh, so should the depots also fill up hydrogen buses as well as trains? Well, that's exactly the possibility, isn't it? Um, and that's what I meant about overcapacity on the production facility. If, if we could combine transport modes or, or collectively um, bring together a range of users, that would be the optimal solution. It would justify investment in, in excess capacity at the fuel stations. But also, one of the things about a, a hydrogen infrastructure is it's, it's repurposable. So even if you know that in 20 years' time a route is planned to be electrified, it still could make sense to operate hydrogen trains in the interim because the infrastructure left behind when the trains move to other areas would be usable for other purposes. So you could power buses, cars, whatever. And I think one of the reasons we, we've seen that five-year prospect on hydrogen cars for so, so many years is that unless or until you get to critical mass with the fueling stations, mm. people are always nervous. And it's yep. the same thing we see with electric cars. Although we're told that there's a huge take-up, it's, it's still relatively low in the it's scheme. It's frighteningly of the tiny, yeah. You know, it's still yeah. talking about point the, percentages, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's due to the, to the recharging availability. Um, so I think the more... Our deployment of fuel stations could offer alternatives for other modes as well, the better. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's the end of the question. I think that's, I might have missed a few questions and apologies for that. And I'll try and follow them up if I didn't and chase me everyone if, if I've missed your questions. Um, but that's been brilliant. Mike, thanks so much for that. We're, we're running horribly late, quarter of an hour late, but um, that's been worth it because it's just really interesting. And we've had a lot of, a lot of questions, um, lots of people just really interested in, in following that uh, following that through. Um, what I'm going to do is, um, I think, uh, let's have a look. Oh, yeah, there we are. The final there. Thanks to Alston as well for letting you, um, letting you come and do this. Uh, thanks to various people for prodding me and suggesting this was a very good idea. And uh, no, it's a pleasure to have a chat with you again, Mike. It's been great. Um, 
very quickly I'll go through and say uh, thanks to Heel for putting this on, somehow managing by the force of tech to put this on iTunes. Rail Natter is now on iTunes, Spotify and the other one as well, the, the Colourful Bands one that I've forgotten the name of. Uh, so go, go on, if you want to listen to it rather than watch it, which is daft if you've all been sat here watching it for an hour, um, then, so, then you can do that. Um, right now, in fact 14 minutes ago, the vi this video went up about Maglev, so you can enjoy that, it's a beast. Um, and also on Friday, there will be the next In the Permanent Way uh, series. And you can find out more about that by going onto my YouTube channel as well. Um, next week, we've got Dr. David Turner joining to talk about beer, another fuel of the nation. Um, so that should be good fun. And hopefully the tech will work. Um, actually, to be fair, I think it's been all right, Mike, hasn't it? The tech sort of, it's not collapsed yeah. around us. I think uh, so. It yeah. Looks like the worst tech seems to be the lighting in my room now. Yeah, likewise. I actually I need to sort lighting out because at the moment I've got this lampshade, which is just horrible. Um, well, actually, it's a nice lampshade, but it's not very good for camera. But we'll, we'll get there. Um, so, yep. Yeah, so that's also make your theme requests for Rail Natter more generally, everyone. Um, and uh, oh, yeah. And if if you want to uh, drop me a coffee and coffee, great. That it really helps. Thank you. Um, uh, and it only remains to say thanks. Uh, thanks very much indeed, Mike. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, maybe sometime in the future, 2023, if Railnet are still going, we can um, we can do one of these in a train or something. I don't know, in in the in a hydrogen train running around on the network. That'd be nice. Um, yeah. Absolute pleasure. Cheerio, everyone, and thank you, Mike. Cheers Bye. now. Bye. Bye.